Hello and welcome to this Candid Conversation. My name's Steve Dunkley. Hope you're well and staying safe as the lockdown for COVID-19 eases in many countries, but gets reintroduced in others, especially in US states like Florida, that have just seen over 15,000 cases in a single day. So the key is to be ready and prepared and plan for all sorts of scenarios. And today we'll be talking about the importance of finance business partners within an organization. So executives that are actively looking to add value by connecting with the business, building relationships with key stakeholders and understanding and influencing to add value. So um, first of all, I'm really pleased to be joined by Judy Romano, Vice President and CFO of Technology for IHG, as well as Netse Magwende, Head of Finance for Willis Towers Watson, Great Britain, and Anders Lou Lindbergh, a former finance business partner from AP Muller-Mersk and someone who lives and breathes uh, finance business partnering. Uh, so in, within this episode, we're going to start off by looking at how to go about being the best version of yourself every day, which I know from Anders is a great foundation to being an effective business partner, uh, especially today, sort of how to keep positive and professional while the world around us may be bleak with the pandemic. So we'll look at how companies have been coping and pivoting and how priorities have changed within the finance function since lockdown. Um, we'll also look at what makes the ultimate finance business partner and how to go about building an effective business partnering framework that can nurture and mould the incoming talent and give the direction necessary to evolve finance executives up to the CFO level. First of all, let's welcome Judy Romano. Thanks for joining us today, Judy. Thank you. I've known Judy for many years. Uh, you've been a great collaborator for some events I've organised and it was great to see your LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago where you held up a copy of the FDE magazine that you appeared in back in 2009. Uh, at the time you were then the international CFO of McKesson, the $200 billion pharmaceutical and medical product distributor and health information technology provider. Uh, then you became the CFO international of Equifax and very recently joined IHG, uh, the hotel group that has Holiday Inn and Crown Plaza amongst its portfolio. Um, so I guess while the doors have been shut, there's been much activity going on within the hotels to sort of pandemic proof them, as well as within your finance department and within your own life. So um, what have you been up to? And also what has been the inspiration for you to keep going when everything else has been on lockdown? So thank you for the opportunity, Steve. Uh, it's great to be with you. So uh, yes, I shorted with uh, IHG about two weeks before the pandemic came down and uh, the doors were uh, shut down. Coming is everything, as they say. But I felt very prepared for it. I had to lead through crisis. And leading through crisis, combined with leading global finance organizations, meant that I always had to work with remote force, right? So the crisis taught me how to lead from the front, mm -hmm. be visible, be transparent. And those experiences have helped me lead the team through the crisis. So I have done a couple of things maybe just to put some processes in place so that people would not feel isolated during the crisis. So I did three times a week stand-up meetings, like from the Agile organization, 30-minute quick stand-up meetings with my directors, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, I got the whole team together for 30 minutes. And there were times when there was really not much to share. But it was important to allow the team to ask questions, to see each other together on the video screen. So that was very important. Skip level meetings, very essential. Mm. Those skip level meetings allowed me direct access to lower level employees, also them having access to me. Being new, plus being in this new circumstance of remote work, was very important for them to be able to chat with me and talk to me about what they are going through personally. So pulling it all together, giving just... Uh, 
making the team clear whilst we were not physically together, we actually bonded much better because there was a lot of effort put into place and structure to make sure that people felt that there was a theme every week that they could be coming back to. And that consistency and visibility helped them uh, during this pandemic. Sure. So it was good um, working with the team. Um, and, and you personally, were you anything that you were doing individually? I, I believe in healthy body, healthy mind. So I exercise five days a week, get up at before five. And uh, so I start off the day like that. It gave me calmness and it gave me the consistency that I've always had uh, with or without the crisis. So I was able to lead them through because I was feeling confident and comfortable with where we were. Excellent. Uh, good discipline to train that much. Uh, I'm sort of doing the walking every afternoon, so it's not, not so much running because, uh, yeah, <laughs> but maybe I'll uh, increase uh, the cardio workout regime. But uh, anyway, it's good, good to hear anyway. Um, then we also have Netsai Mangwende. Thanks for joining us, Netsai. Thanks for having me, Steve. Really looking forward to the discussion. Good stuff, good stuff. So, yeah, Netsai, we've known each other for over five years and you've uh, taken part in a number of our events. Uh, and you're actually on stage at the HFS Summit last year in London, which was great. And I recall first connecting with you when you were head of business partnering UK and Europe at AIG. Uh, and then you moved to Willis Towers Watson to head up FPNA and become the new head of finance for Great Britain. Uh, so that was three years ago, I believe. Um, now, I know that in March this year, Aon announced that it's combining with you to create the world's largest insurance broker. Um, so these are certainly interesting times. And uh, I also know that all this M&A stuff is still in place. So let's, not, let's, let's focus more on your life uh, during the lockdown and what you've been up to and how you've been able to maintain the best version of yourself in these unprecedented times. Thanks, Steve. I just love the question because I think what we tend to do as finance professionals or any professionals is focus on uh, getting the business running, right? And your question is around focusing on you and it's about being the best you so you can get the business, you can be more productive, right, and more efficient. And a big part of that is caring for people. So I struggled. I had my ups and downs uh, during the lockdown like everybody else. I had to completely change my mindset because I'm in a leadership position and I need to be in a position to support others. And I thought, hang on, I need to focus on me. So, you know, so what can I do to get more energy, to get more drive, to get more enthusiasm, right, so I can help uh, people? So I said, um, I'm going to come out of this lockdown uh, healthier and, and fitter. Uh, so for those who know me, I absolutely hate cooking. So I started teaching myself how to cook, actually, so I can make a mean cuisine now. Um, and that covered the nutrition and the health aspect. I started, um, you know, exercising as well. So I was doing walking a lot, virtual training sessions, and I found that just um, gave me the energy and the drive and the focus and in a way, like a healthy, um, a healthy destruction. So lots of workouts, lots of walking and stuff like that. So from a team perspective, it's just really about uh, caring for people, going beyond the individuals. Um, I have people in my team who have uh, young children and with nurseries closing, we had to change their working patterns. We had to be flexible. I have people in, um, you know, not ideal living conditions. So, you know, how do we support them with, 
with, with, with the small things like equipment, uh, with screens. And then also the most important thing I've, I've found is really mental health, right? So, you know, what are the different ways we can support people through this, right? Because it's, it's distressing. It's, it's a really desperate situation uh, we went through. And all the mental health support has been fantastic as well and a real, a real priority for us. So, yeah, it's quite a... How long has it been? 100 days or so since the lockdown started. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of personal challenges not only individually but for your team and uh, so it's good to hear that you've managed to keep the morale going and uh, keep uh, things productive and uh, yeah especially with, with with the backdrop of what's going on within the company as well so it sounds sounds all sounds yeah. very good and um, now Anders uh, I've known you for about five years and it was great to meet you in Copenhagen uh, for one of the events that I organized there and I believe you were head of the global finance project management office at AP Mollemersk at the time and I also remember you were hosting an event in London uh, when you got the whole room to work out like an aerobics lesson for over 200 finance directors, which is pretty amusing. <laughs> um, so I guess getting energy levels up is essential to be the best version of yourself. And uh, be good to hear your views on that, what you're doing at the Business Partnering Institute, as well as hearing about your new book, I understand it's called Unlocking the Future of FPNA. Absolutely, Steve. And thanks, uh, thanks a lot for having me. You know, uh, I actually repeated that uh, stunt where I got 200 people up to do squats with an even bigger conference uh, last year, where I had 600 finance executives, you know, all the big shots in Denmark, they were up doing, uh, doing squats just after lunch when I was hosting, uh, hosting that conference there. So it's really, it's a great trick because people don't really expect it yet. You know, it, it keeps them going through, uh, through the heavy after lunch period. So you know, energy management is a hugely important concept, not just for finance people, but really for, for everyone. Uh, but I feel for business partners that, you know, needs to, deliver something beyond themselves, it's really important to have good energy, right? Otherwise, you know, if you cannot take care of yourself, how can you take care of others? So I think that's, that, that's really where, where it starts. I would say, you know, for me coming into to a new role, so just like Judy also started something new 1st of February, and, you know, I left corporate to, uh, to go consulting or whatever you wanna, you wanna call it. And I joined, you know, the company I've helped start, Business Partner Institute. Uh, we started back in April 18, and then I joined 1st of February here full-time. And it's really, you know, because I'm driven to help individuals and companies succeed with business partnering. That's, as you said in your intro, that's, that's me. That's all, you know, that, that's what I'm, I'm all about. So, of course, it's a, it's a completely different thing to work in consulting compared to work in corporate. And, you know, I had to change a lot of things as well. I managed to just get started before the whole lockdown happened. You, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because I managed to get the upward slope and then, you know, take, take the downward slope as well. But, but, you know, just those few weeks I had before everything started to, to go south really just confirmed the huge potential that, that we have in our company. So I'm, I'm really happy for that journey. For me, it was all about building capacity, right? So building capacity to perform when I got busy. Uh, so I also run, you know, five days a week in the morning, not a long run, but just, you know, to get out, up and out, and then, then you know, start, start your day on the right foot. I think, you know, just to touch upon the last point you mentioned, Steve, this new ebook that I published uh, yesterday, which is called Unlocking the Future of FPNA, which is really a, a short guide to, you know, why do we need to transform? What do we need to transform into? How are we going to do it? And what are the, the next steps you can take as a function or FPNA professional to continue to succeed? Because FPNA is, a, is at a crossroad. We've done you know, the planning and analysis for so many years and not really developed what are we going to use it all for? 
it's not enough to just send it off in an email. I have it available as self-service. And we got to go out there and talk to business leaders about what do these insights mean for them and their decision-making, right? That's business partner one-on-one. But I feel FP&A needs to come into this field. You know, some professionals like Netsai and Julie have done it, you know, naturally throughout the whole career. For others, it's a new thing. And we need to tell them this is the direction you need to go in and here's how to get there. So that's really the driving force behind this new ebook that I launched yesterday. Sounds exciting. And I guess the key thing is that that social element of uh, getting the message into the business and making sure that that's that true sort of collaboration going on there. And we'll talk a bit about uh, the social CFO a bit later. Um, but I think for now, we should talk about the finance organization itself and then how the finance organizations adapted uh, to this working from home and how have priorities within the finance organization changed. So uh, maybe Netsai, you can start with Netsai. Thanks, Steve. For me, there are a number of aspects, and I'm going to touch on three. The first is being on top of those external factors. So whether it's, you know, China coming out of the lockdown, and what does that mean from a business perspective? Or, for example, India going into the lockdown, what does that mean for our operations there and our ability to to continue doing business uh, remotely? Um, so there are lots of examples I can give, but really I think as finance business partners, understanding all those uh, dimensions and being on top of that. Um, and um, as you experienced during the pandemic, right, things were evolving really fast. Uh, so we had to be on top of that so we can understand what does this mean for us as a business? Um, and how can we mitigate um, any adverse impacts. Uh, But most importantly, right, there are some great opportunities as well. So how do we actually capitalize on those um, opportunities? So I'd say keeping abreast of the the external world was uh, super important. Uh, the second thing I'll touch on is our business strategy. Within finance business partnering, you know, in the past we've had the luxury of doing things uh, periodically, monthly, quarterly. The change really, Steve, was um, the, the pace of that information, right? I couldn't wait to do a quarterly forecast. We need to know now. Uh, we need to analyze the information now to understand where we are, whether it's by team, by segment, by industry, by geography. Uh, we needed to, to really be able to measure our KPIs on a, on a frequent basis, right? So in our brokerage business, we're looking at retention, new business, you know, in our consulting business, we're looking at utilization and realization. So there was a, a it's what we do on a day to day, but there was a sense of urgency Um, to do things uh, more frequently and really be able to go to the depth of our performance and also assign that to um, accountability. Um, The third aspect, which I'll touch upon, is resources. Our biggest strategic asset is people. So it was about making sure that the well-being of our staff was a priority. Resource planning was, um, you know, really, really, really important from a people perspective, but also from a performance perspective, you know, the best way we could protect our um, profits was by managing our expenses. As a company, we decided to mitigate um, any adverse impacts through discretionary expenses. A lot of, um, you know, detailed analysis around uh, what we can and what we can't do and what the impact of that is. So it's been uh, pretty eventful, to say the least. So those are the three points. Uh, Lots more, but those are the three sort of main points that I wanted to share. Great. Great stuff, Nitsai. Yeah, Judy, 
How, how's it been going from that perspective in terms of the... Uh... We look at everything through a four-lens view. So the first one would be our guests, because we are in the hospitality. The second is our owners. The third one would be our employees. And the fourth, our stakeholders, our shareholders. So everything we do goes through those lenses. And it's very important to try to find a balanced view, right? So when we start with the shareholders, uh, making sure that we have frequent communications with them, talk about the state of the union. So we have had cash is kink has been one of the most important focus that in every crisis, that's what you do, right? Looking at what the outgoings go. And coming, having come from two companies that have extremely high margins, and before that at McKesson, you mentioned with the healthcare IT, we had slim margins. So the behaviors are very different. So it has been very good to have worked for it, uh, companies where it has been very tough to get the margins improved. Uh, because those experiences have had me in crisis. So we look at discretionary spend, procurement, who, you know, uh, negotiating payment terms, extending as much as we can, uh, reducing getting to the minimums uh, with some of the commitments to allow cash uh, to stay with us. So that has been very important. Discretionary spend, obviously. And because I do technology, one has to look at what are the projects we are working on, despite all of them being considered strategic, what are what are projects that, that an owner can consume now? And then obviously looking at the gas, giving them the flexibility, cancellation policies, and focusing on uh, health and safety of, of the gas has been top of mind. We have also experienced this, everybody as the pace of change has accelerated. To be honest, I love that it did because people had a reason why to move faster. So it was an incredible call to action. We, we accelerated decision-making. The flex work has helped. We have already had a flexible working arrangement in place at, at ISG because it's a global company. So we were already, in terms of technology and security, we were already prepared for a piece of part of the organization work remotely. So that has helped as we move into the 100% remote work. So these are some of the things, nothing very different that we heard before, but the lenses that we look through to make sure that we are uh, paying attention to all the different uh, clients that we are serving and that we are keeping them on this journey has been very important. And, and the proof is really that when we cut the dividends, the shareholders were very supportive. We have never cut dividends. And we continue having new grant breaks and new signings um, with uh, ISG. Uh, which, which is the sign of confidence. So we just have to continue being transparent and uh, keep the four constituents in mind as we make decisions going forward. I would just completely um, agree with uh, Judy, Steve, because when you're faced with a, a challenge, the, the level of innovation that comes out of there is just fantastic, right? And with people having the space to think, and we do need to do things differently. I mean, I was like pulling, literally pulling my hair out when we had to do our first virtual quarter close. And Judy, you know how many people you touch, right, to close a quarter uh, in the insurance world from your, your clients, your carriers, your, uh, you know, your business partners. And that's externally. And then internally, it's operations, it's finance, it's the front office business teams. And that just generated lots of ideas and different ways of working. Really taking a step back as well and saying, you know, should we do this differently? Can we do this more efficiently? 
And does that work really need to be done in that place, right? So we were moving work around uh, when some of our offices were, were closed, right? Uh, we had to move work onshore and offshore. So it's, it's, been, it's been really interesting. And I mean, it just drives um, efficiency, uh, productivity and, you know, cost reduction as well, because then you can re- reallocate that time elsewhere. So I'd completely agree with that. And completely agree with Judy around cash, cash being king, protecting your cash. That's a real uh, focus at the moment. Great stuff. And uh, Anders, are some of these uh, areas that uh, Netsai and Judy have been talking about, what you're seeing in the, within the finance organisation at the moment? Yeah, so, so I, I've spoken with quite a few senior finance leaders throughout this crisis, really just to, you know, first of all, validate four hypotheses that we created at the beginning uh, in at the Business Park Institute to say, what, what does finance need to be successful on for the rest of 2020 to steer their companies safely through the crisis? Because I think as Judith Nessa has just confirmed, right, you know, in a crisis, finance is sort of you know, pull towards the table and say, what do we do finance? We need some insights in terms of what decisions can we make? We need some numbers fast. We have no idea what's happening. And, you know, in that situation, you know, one of two things can happen. Either you're ready to go and you take steer at the table and you steer your company through, or you haven't prepared well and then you're stumbling through. I think Judy and Netsai are good examples of people that have taken steer, even though there were, you know, challenges, no doubt, but, but taken steer and tried to lead their companies through. And many other finance leaders maybe have struggled a bit more. But we really have these four hypotheses, which was to say, well, first of all, we have to run crisis performance management successfully. Then we had to build team capacity to get through this, right? Finance professionals have been more busy than ever through this crisis here. And, and clearly, if we don't build capacity, if we don't you know, treat them well and take care of their mental health, like, like NetSap was also talking about, you know, they're going, they're going to go down the stress. It might not happen right here, right now, but maybe we'll have to have this happen after summer when budget comes and whatnot, right? So we really have to build capacity in the team. Then there's all these change initiatives across the company to realize value. It can be, you know, cash is king, like Judy said, or it can be other initiatives that we need to uh, speed up or something we need to slow down or kill completely, right? But we have to find out where can we turn those, some of these value drivers to really, you know, preserve value. I think we're not talking about value creation. We were talking about value preservation for most companies. Of course, there were a few industries like health and tech that might be able to, uh, to, to create more value. And then the last bit is really, how do we plan for next year, right? You know, many companies are still using some sort of a budget process, but we know, you know, come 1st of January, most of the numbers will be outdated anyway. So what are we going to do? Are we going to do something different or not? So, so right now we're really shifting towards, you know, everything that has happened, how do we leverage the opportunity to create change in finance? Again, during this, I was talking about it that, you know, so many things happened at speed and we have done things, so many things differently, but now we're really at a time where how do we make that into the new way of working? So, you know, that, pivoted me to think about the next steps to really say, what are some of the mega trends that are also impacting finance that we really need to figure out how to, to make work. So remote work is one of them, right? And now we have shown we can do a quarter close remotely. Can we work completely remote? When do we need to be in the office? When not to? Digitalization, you know, clearly that has been turbocharged by this, uh, this, this crisis here. So do we need to do more there? I'm sure, Judy, you have also prioritized some investments based on how uh, how could it help us go more digital versus others that might not be able to, to do that? 
then there's the whole agility or agile movement to say, you know, if we need numbers as fast as possible, clearly almost real time, then how do we become more agile and deliver that? And last but not least, I think the, the key thing is, and you, Steve, you also talked about it uh, just before we started this podcast, you know, the human interaction. Now we've had social distancing, but you know, how are humans going to interact in the future? When is it important that we interact physically? When can we do it remotely? And when do we not need to interact because we have to focus on deep work? So these four trends are really what I'm looking to see how our finance function is going to you know, grab these and change with the trends and get ahead of them rather than you know, being, uh, being pulled down by them later on when we haven't realized that, that the world is changing. Just one other comment going back to the innovation point. Being in my, I call it the second 90 days at work, I'm sharing it on LinkedIn. It's really all about technology. How do you embrace technology? So I could understand a little bit more the art of the possible. I attended RPA conferences and, and a couple of weeks ago, I started the journey with my team and the internal RPA COE to identify opportunities of capacity creation. So that's one of the journeys that I think we talked about. Why not now? I mean, this is the best time to do it, right? Everything is in flux. And also introducing blockchain uh, to the organization. So use technology so that you could create capacity, simplify the way you do things, and really have that time to add value and use data and insights. And how do you, if you have the time to immerse yourself into the dynamics of not only your business inside, but looking outside, the competitors, the competitor landscape is changing. And understanding, I have done a lot of reading, technology and hospitality. It's amazing all the work that is already being done. So who is going to pivot faster? Is going to have a, an edge on the competitors as guests start coming back. And I'm trying to lead that from within my team and getting the rest of the organization on this journey. And it's a great opportunity to, to do this. Good stuff, Judy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, getting... Uh sort of more tech savvy with all this emerging technology is critical uh set against the backdrop we've just discussed i mean uh what do you see as the key attributes of the ultimate finance business partner i should lead that one steve so so i think you know in in a classic sense finance has been very good on the insights side right so we analyze a lot of numbers and data and we find some trends and patterns we get all excited but then we don't really know what to do with it Right. So, so to me, the key attributes of a business partner is really in the influence vertical. So uh, we have this business partner framework that has, you know, it's called the three I's, insights times influence equal impact. And the real difference is really in the influence vertical because that's where finance professionals typically have struggled because it's not our nature to be, you know, these personal bold types that are out there discussing things with people. You know, we like numbers. That's probably why we went into finance. So what are the key things in the, in, in the influence vertical? Well, the first one is to build relationships. And building relationships is all about trust, right? And trust, you know, you can, you can uh, equate that to the trust equation where you have credibility, reliability, intimacy, then divided by self-orientation, right? So it's all about building trust uh, with your stakeholders, of course, coming with the right numbers, but also, you know, can you be trusted with confidential information? Are you on time, et cetera? So lots of things there. And do they actually believe you're there to help them rather than to be a control mechanism that will just you know, hit them in the head in case they're behind. All those factors are very important. 
The second bit is business acumen. Do you really understand the business that you're working for? I'm sure Judy can speak a lot to this, just joining a new business, which is different from, from what she's been working at before. There's a lot of new things to learn. It's just not just taking your finance framework from one company to the next and then say, here I am, let's just do it this way. No, you need to learn the business in a completely a, a new way. Um, and then so you know you gotta go out there and experience it, or at least talk to the people that 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 know a lot about it. In, in case you, you cannot actually uh, go go to the office or to to the hotels, but you need to go you need to go and experience it. And then the last bit is communicating with assertiveness, right? So you need to be confident in presenting your numbers, but you also need to show empathy for the people that you're presenting to. If you do not understand their point of view, and you just say, "Well, here are the numbers. We're behind. You gotta go fix it." you're not influencing anything, right? So communicating with assertiveness, having business acumen and building trusted relationships. I think those are the three key attributes that business partners really need to develop in the years to come to be successful. So, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. Um, the, the one thing I, I will add to it is I'll give an example of managing expenses. And one of the roles I think that make a really good uh, finance business partner is your ability to connect different pieces of information. Uh, so using expenses as, as an example, in finance, we manage the payroll, you know, where we're spending, how we are against budget, connecting with HR, you get a different flavor on the same numbers, who's left, who's joining, you know, inclusion and diversity statistics, attrition, people's well-being, you connect with um, operations, they're looking at productivity of the people we have. So we have, you know, a thousand people in this function. Um, are they, you know, utilized? Are they, um, you know, what's our resource planning? Can we move things around? Um, and then lastly, you're connecting with the business, right? And the business are making investment decisions. If you apply the stuff that Anders mentioned, you can be in the center of that. You're connecting all the different information. And, and what is it telling you? Right, so you can you can collect it, you can analyze it, you can access it, build relationships with people in those areas, find out the qualitative stuff that's not in the numbers, but at the end of that day, it's so what? Right, so what is it telling you about our cost base and what recommendations would you, would you put forward? So when you come up with, you know, some great analysis, but it's the so what? So what's your advice when you take a step back is what is this information telling us? Are we where we need to be, not just from a budgeting and finance perspective, but from a strategic perspective? And are we going in the direction we need to do? And what's not working? What's working? And what are the actions? And I think, I think that's like pretty powerful, right, to be able to do that and give executives or leadership recommendations that are based on connecting different information and coming up with what we need to do differently for the future. Maybe my three points to add, again, not repeat anything that was said, and I absolutely agree with every single one of them, is to me, is collaboration is key. So this is about working together, high EQ. We are not paid to be popular. So it's all about the how we communicate, how we get our points across. So not being afraid. Again, if you have done your homework, you get, you got the backdrops, you have the data to support it, the statistics, whatever you need then you should feel very confident to make a course that or recommendation that might not be popular. And maybe the third one is, I call it the art of persuasion. Sometimes you just at the influencing, so you have to persuade them maybe. 
uh, to consider your points of views as they are making the final recommendations. Great, Judy. I mean, it's interesting. The uh, the idea for this podcast came about uh, on LinkedIn when Anders post about a new type of CFO, the social CFO went viral. And uh, I think this inspired you, Judy, and uh, you sort of reposted, got lots of comments and things like that. And, uh, but as, you know, you mentioned just now the collaboration, the importance of collaboration. It seems like uh, Anders struck upon something that really resonated. Uh, you get quite a lot of feedback about that, Anders. Yeah, I think, you know, when, when, when you put people in boxes, it always puts people on fences, right? Then they come out and say, what's actually happening here? Then they look at it and say, hmm, that actually makes sense. I need to be more social. It might not sit well with me, but actually that, that's what I need to do. You know, I can be, I can know my numbers. I can know my analytics. I can know the technology. I can know the strategy and I can be a disruptor. But if I cannot go out there and sell my insights, so it changes decisions and build relationships, not just with, you know, other, other leaders or senior managers, but also, you know, customers and other stakeholders like shareholders, et cetera, then, you know, it, it just all falls flat. And I think, you know, everyone knows that by now. We all know we need to do this, but knowing you need to do something is not the same thing as you are doing it because you struggle with the how. How am I actually going to be more social? Like, I mean, if I look at my own journey, when I started in Maersk for like 13 and a half years ago, you know, picking up the phone and calling someone was terrifying to me, walking over to them, I just did not do it, right? So I was not very social. Then, you know, five, six years back, I think I made a, a must-win battle for myself to, you know, become better at this, you know, socializing, networking, building relationships. And I think, you know, when I met you, Steve, back at the, the FD, FD event five years ago, there's a completely different experience for me than it would have been, let's say, 10 years ago. There, you know, I could you know, be part of the conversation, steer the conversation, be an active, engaged participant. And so I think we have to make a choice for ourselves and say, can I become more social? I don't think you should be the most sociable person in the world, but can I become more social? And if the answer is, is yes, then, you know, there, there's, you know, you just got to put yourself out there. It's outside the comfort zone that it happens. If the answer is no, I mean, there are also options for you, right? You cannot, you can dig into the data science or the tech part of it. And, you know, you still have to engage with a few people, but then there will be other people that can take your insights and go on and help business stakeholders make better decisions with that. So I think it's, it comes down to the personal choice and say, you know, can I, do I want to become more social and then, you know, steer your, your career and the choices in, in whatever direction that fits. Absolutely right, because I always think about a relationship. When I talk about collaboration, it has to be a push and pull. So it's not only me calling, I got some numbers, I got some results, I want to tell you something. This is also them picking up their phone and calling us, hey, I'm considering doing this. Uh, what do you think? What do you see? What do you hear? So it's a collaborative effort that goes way beyond the numbers. It's about strategy. So I always call ourselves that. I say to my team that I believe that we graduated when we become co-pilots. And that could be whatever level we are. So it doesn't have to be, so it's CFO to CEO, but it's also every level. If they trust you enough that they share with you their vulnerabilities, their questions, their doubts, um, what they are uh, struggling with, then you earn that trust, like uh, Anders was saying, and that's where the beauty comes. So social is a piece, because if you are not approachable, they will only see you for whatever numbers and results that day you deliver. But for those that really want to uh, advance their careers, 
To what extent do finance execs and candidates for finance jobs need to, to reinvent themselves? I mean, what do you look for in a, in a candidate for a finance job? If you get a person in for, for an interview as a business partner, you know, then you would probe them into certain sorts of questions that really look at you know, the personality type, their ability to actually collaborate and actually be outgoing, be curious, and so on and so forth. And if you're looking at someone that really needs to go deep into some technical domain, then of course you would ask them completely different questions. So there's, there's really, I really see the, the crossroad rather. I don't know if, if Julia Netza, you see, you see that as well, or you see something, something different. So when I'm looking at um, finance for the future and what I need, I need all of that. You know, I need the systems experts. I need the process control controllers. Um, and I need, I need that senior finance business partner who has, um, you know, the social attributes that um, Anders mentioned and um, is empowered and can speak to the business and build relationships. But also what Judy mentioned about, at the end of the day, we're finance, right? And uh, we're working with very senior uh, business people. So you need to have a backbone and you need to, be, you, you need to have credibility. So uh, data, process, systems, and finance business partnering. I think when you crack that, that's a world-class finance business partnering team right there. And you cannot do one at the expense of the other. You cannot be a social and finance person without the backing of substance. And, you know, what's your message? Right, and then you can't have all the data, uh, technical data, and not be able to articulate it. So when you when you have that and the support of the organisation to invest in all the aspects, I think that you can get something really, really special. So when I'm recruiting for the future, I'm recruiting different types of skill sets. I look for people who embrace change. So obviously, have all the foundational blocks. Those people were naturally curious. But when I started this transformational journey with my team, I just embraced it. And what is absolutely fantastic that you do not even have to spend a dollar and you can learn so much on the internet. So it goes all about that technology is an enabler. I, I am not going to become a technologist, but I can have a conversation with some ask questions that are relevant, maybe challenge some things, and also say, I don't know, but I'm here to learn. And you need all hats. It's, you just need to know which one to use when. It's not that one is not needed. You need all of them because sometimes you just got to go to the core and defend the data and your insights and, and your conclusions. And sometimes you have to be the persuasive, the social, the influencer who can help them get through that. It wasn't maybe their idea, but how they could benefit them. I think my key point is that it's impossible, at least I find right now, to find all of this in one person. Right? So you cannot be a deep technical expert while being very sociable. At least, you know, they're probably out there, but they're very rare finds. So I think you made a great point that it's to say it's the diversity of the team that will carry us through. So I think in the past, if we built, you know, a FPNA team or a business partner team, call it what you want, we might have recruited, let's say, six similar people into that team because they had the same role to fulfill. And so we needed something similar. I think in, in the future, we need to staff these teams with different people, right? So some that are more of the technical nature and some that are more sociable and give them different tasks. And I fully agree that, you know, we, we got to build specialism. So if you have, you know, the service center in India or somewhere else, if you have a center of analytics, 
that then feeds the business partner. So in big companies, you can have that. We have that immersed too. In smaller companies, you might need to have that within your team. So I think, you know, we really need to think about the diversity in the team when we staff it. So we get the different capabilities into it rather than six clones, uh, because that's probably not going to work so well. I would agree with that, Anders. And when you're talking about diversity, I think the other thing that came to mind was this virtual world. So due to COVID or due, due to being a global workforce, in, in our world, we, you had to be in New York to do a, a leadership role. And now you can do it from anywhere. And with COVID, we're all working <laughs> remotely. So it's, it's going to be really interesting around the future and, and the ability to manage and motivate people virtually. You know, what if you're a new grad and you're joining the company? We'll have to teach you virtually and also cultural awareness as well. You know, different cultures, different geographies and uh, just challenge ourselves. Does location matter anymore? You know, in the future, will it matter or is, is it getting the, the job done? And if you're miles away, how do you build that uh, teamwork and that review and coaching and all of that great stuff? Yeah. Interesting to see how you go about building an effective business partnering framework. So any comments, people? To me, building the framework is always the, the starting point for succeeding with business partnering. We have three steps to an overall successful business partnering journey, but the framework is really step one where you establish the foundation. And the foundation is really to have a common definition of what, what does business partnering mean for us? Because, you know, if you have say uh, 200 hotels, they each have a finance director and they all do it differently. You know, then it's difficult to actually go to, uh, to business leaders and say, this is how we do business partnering in our company. The second thing is really to have a capability model that says, these are the capabilities our business partners need to succeed. Um, because if you don't know what capabilities you need, then it's also difficult to develop those capabilities. So be specific about that and make choices. You cannot do everything that, like, like we just discussed. Then you have to clarify your operating model. So do you have everything in one location or do you have something in the service center, something in the center of excellence and so on and so forth. And then I think the last bit is really to have leadership buying, right? If leadership is not bought into the business partnering journey and creating a framework for it, you will, you will not be successful. So I think those are, those are some of the key points to establishing. I like that a lot. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to be in an organization where you have sponsorship and you have funding, you can create that framework. For me, if I'm thinking about the four things that I absolutely need to bring that framework to light, I'm thinking about to have a management accounting system. So not a financial accounting system, a management accounting system. Do I have a process that feeds off other systems? Because in uh, FP&A or business partnering, we don't own the company data in terms of statutory accounts, uh, but we take them, right? And then we break them into management and we analyze them. So do we have a process that links all the financial data, which gives our data credibility and valid validity and trail that into the, the management, right? Um, access to business data is another one. So, you know, you've got your financial data, but you've got the KPIs, you know, the granular business information that the business are using to drive that data. That needs to be connected. So systems data process, if you have investment in that, you're in a really good space. And then the last piece is getting the right people in to build that function. What do you think is more 
important the individual or the organization in uh, making business partnering right or is it a mix of the two it's always a mix steve right i mean you can't say it's one or the other i think at, at, you know, at the end of the day there is an individual that needs to do something different right so you, you cannot take the individual out of the equation i think that the organization can do a lot to you know, create the right environment and the right conditions to succeed with business partnering. But at the end of the day, it's the individual that needs to do something different, right? So it is, it is of course, a mix. I've been a business partner in a, in a situation where I didn't really get much help and support from, uh, from, from corporate. We had a very outdated accounting system. Most things were done in Excel, and then we did something in PowerPoint. Uh, the purchasing system was one of these uh, blue screen things. Now, we didn't have any of the systems and tools and processes that NetSide was talking about. But still in that situation, if you have the right people, you can still be a good business partner. But I would say, if you wanna succeed at a corporate grand scale level, the organization matters the most, right? At the individual level, you can always find good people, but what can move average people to good and good to great, that's the organization, including its leaders. So, you know, you, you can pick which one you think is most important, but, but you know, it all depends and it's, it's, a, it's probably a mix. If you put me on the fence, I'd have to choose people because I think if you have the right talent and the right person there, you can create value and you can build business cases for, for investments. It's a team sport. You know, you could be a senior finance business partner, and in charge of you know scoring the goals, so you're the striker, but you need the whole team uh, behind you. So making sure that you you know you're somebody who's well connected, you know all the social CFO attributes that Amber mentioned us are really important. But you cannot do it in isolation. You need to be a team player, and you need you need you know the whole finance function behind you. And you need the business there. You know, you need to be playing the game with the business in the same game as the business, and you know, being quite a you know a fundamental and central part of that. Extremely well said. So my only takeaway there as well that you need a leader who is supporting of you. So again, it's a team sport. But I see my role uh, not only being at the table and and representing my team, but also removing obstacles from the way. Or being a blocker, meaning when things come down, let finance do it because we are the also catch it all group. How do I say, okay, how does that fit into the priorities? Um, and, and, and maybe maybe just to build on a few of the points here. So earlier Judy spoke about, you know, the, the two-way street with business stakeholders, right? It's not just us that needs to go to the business. And now Netsa I mentioned, you know, the finance function backing. So really business partnering is a three-way street where you have to build a relationship with your business stakeholders and inside the finance function. But I think the key point there is that the business partner is the person that has to take the first step, right? So you have to take the first step towards the business and say, hey, I'm your business partner. I'm here to help you meet or beat your targets. And you have to take the first step into the finance function and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to really support my business stakeholders. I need a lot of things for you. So let's, let's, let's find out how we make this work and how I can be of help to you as well to make sure you get what you need. Because, you know, sometimes even accounting needs something from the business, good explanations to give to the auditors. So in that way, you can really be the, you know, the, the facilitator between everyone or the, what I call the key account manager. So the business has one uh, voice into the into the finance, and that person will then take care of everything within finance. So it's really a it's really a three way street where the business partner has to take the first step. 
Great, great stuff. And uh, we've talked a bit about the individual, talked about the uh, the organisation and Netso board in the team as well. Um, so how have you actually delivered value as a finance business partner at various stages of your career? A few years back when I was at um, AIG, Steve, I was asked to manage a team of young professionals way before it was sexy to talk about inclusion and diversity. And everybody was from a different part of the world. I think we had representation of every uh, continent. So it was really, it was a challenge for me because we, you know, back in the day when we were training, we had structure, we had roles, we had clear progression, we, you know, everything was quite structural. So what I learned, and then I'll come to the, the value piece, was I learned how to work differently, to communicate differently. Day one, I had people sending me WhatsApp and say, hey, how are you? Can we chat over the weekend? I was like, hang on. Back in the day, if you wanted to speak to your line manager, you'd book an appointment. So the communication style was different. Uh, the constant challenging of what we were doing was different. People after three months, I want to do something new. And I'm like, well, you've just started a new role. So it was really a big adjustment to me. We were working collaborative, we were using uh, different communication styles, we were constantly reinventing stuff, uh, we had lots of ideas, everybody would brainstorm in the morning and would say, what do we need to get down? And people, every week, people would want to do different things. Okay, today I did this, uh, next week, so forget the roles, forget the structure, forget the profile. But um, figured that out, uh, managed to adjust my approach in terms of how I managed them, so we did sort of job shares and rotations, work boards and deadlines, and uh, the relationship was different. It wasn't formal, it was informal. So we were, we, we were friends at work. I was part of the team and value we brought to the business was just the insight, uh, the recommendations, the innovation, fixing processes, the money we, we saved, the opportunities we identified. And, you know, really pleased to say that the quality of the product, what we did is we went in there and we gave a different perspective and recommendations that our executive leadership team hadn't even thought about because we had people from different geographies, from young professionals developing apps, developing new reports. So that's one example. That delivered a hard benefit to the business, Steve, but I think one of the things it also delivered was a different perspective on roles. All my leadership were young professionals, right? So it, it really challenged the status quo in terms of you need to do 20 years of this role to be a leader. You can be a young professional and be a leader. So that was fantastic. And I think the second thing was that AIG, the business wasn't in a good shape when I joined. The leadership team, we had to turn that around, which we did, to very profitable. And finance were at the center of that, which was really my introduction into driving business performance. So from a revenue perspective, where do we grow? Where do we exit? What do we maintain? Uh, what do we remediate, right? And then from expenses, you know, what's the policy? Where are we spending? What's the value? What are the different levels of expenses we have? It was really getting into the numbers and making sure that our recommendations had financial uh, backing and that we were tracking our performance. Uh, so those are the two two examples from a people perspective and a business performance perspective. Stuff, Judy. 
In terms of the business delivering value, it's, I always look at efficiencies. You constantly have to look at ways to improve the bottom line and gain efficiencies. I think of everything as a river. So I try to go up as high as I can, which is really, how do you generate revenue? What are the sales people doing? And talking to people, understanding the dynamics, which again, gives me one point of view, but the other one from corporate, they would say, hey, we need a 200 basis point margin expansion. And I say that this is kind of like business as usual now because you just have to do this constantly because over time, we become a little bit lazy. We become a little bit complacent. So how do you keep that moving? So that's one. A couple of years back, uh, I have worked across the globe uh, at Equifax, created a visual board where we worked uh, combined with the Six Sigma group and the operations group to find ways to document the, the close process and then find bottlenecks and how you eliminate those bottlenecks. The goal just was to reduce the number of hours, reduce stress, improve morale, and allow time to analyze so that you could actually confirm quality was done over that short amount of time and do everything you can to push activities outside of the critical path that could be done on the time. And that gave a lot of time back, quality improved, so everybody won in that case uh, within the finance and accounting organization. Great stuff, great stuff. So, yeah, it's great to hear your experiences. And uh, and as you've got the experience of being a, a finance business partner, so I guess you've got a few stories too. Yeah, so if I should, you know, plow back through history and look at, you know, the stories where I've been part of creating value, I mean, there's really there's really one thing that, that stands out, and that is that a business partner must be the catalyst that makes things happen. You don't necessarily have to come with all the ideas. You don't, you're typically not the one out executing the ideas, but you have to make the, be the one that ensures that things happen, facilitating the brainstorm, gathering the notes, making the business case, following up with the decision whether we would want to get got the results that we wanted. And so whether I've been part of uh, reducing a startup budget with 10%, shaving a few percentage off of $2 billion cost base, or mitigating a potential two $300 million hit to our bottom line to something less than $100 million, being the catalyst has always been at the center of this. And I think that very much you know, uh, speaks to the role that we have. If you think we're the, the super people that's supposed to do everything and, and, and make everything happen, that doesn't always work like that. But if we can make the wheels turn and help the people that actually physically turn the wheels do it, that's what we need to do. So being the catalyst is the common denominator between all the examples of value creation that I've had during my... my- Great stuff. Anything else to add on that, uh, on telling stories of the business partnering past? Well, I would just maybe maybe just add that we need to do more of this, right? There are too few people out there sharing their stories of how they succeeded as business partners. What kind of value did they create? What did they make more efficient? How did they develop people? The more we can tell these stories, the more confidence we can build in our profession that we can actually do this. Because we've mm-hmm. been talking about business partnering for more than 20 years, at least formally, and, and still you see so many people and companies struggling to succeed. So let's tell more of these success stories and help everyone to actually do this. Yeah, and I guess the failures are important as well. So if they can be open and honest about some things that went wrong, always good to hear those stories too. If it's too polished, then it might not be so realistic, but yeah. yeah that's absolutely true, Steve. I actually, I published an article called, I think my, my seven biggest mistakes as a business partner. So, you know, we also have to talk about the failures. Good stuff. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think it's time to wrap up. It's been a great session. We've looked at key inspirations that get you in the right zone to be a great business partner. We've looked at the current priorities for the finance function as lockdown continues or is being eased. Uh, we discussed what makes a great finance business partner at the individual level and what makes an effective business partnering framework at an organization level level. And we've looked at um, business partnering in action with real life examples. So I hope you've enjoyed taking part in this. Any final words? Well, I just wanted to thank for the opportunities. It was always uh, great to get a confirmation that uh, what we do uh, brings value and other people are doing it and also learn from each other. It's a uh, great stuff. Thank you, Steve. Just thanks for um, having us, Steve, and for connecting us. I really, really, really enjoyed the discussion. And we should uh, do more. And to those listening, keep safe and keep healthy. Excellent, Sai. Anders? Thanks, to, thanks for having us, Steve. I mean, it's always great to discuss business partnering. I'm sure we could have gone on for hours and hours about this, but uh, let's just keep telling the world what it takes to succeed with business partnering, and I'm sure we'll get there. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, everyone out there, be sure to like and reshare this on social media. Looking forward to the next podcast, actually. I think Judy's going to be involved again. <laughs> so look, look out for that one. And uh, yeah, I've been your host, Steve Dunkley. Stay safe and stay resilient. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.